If you would, grab your few Bibles or the scriptures you brought with you and turn to uh, Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we're going to start things off in verse uh, 19. Before I read the passage, let me maybe talk a little history, uh, if you will. History as in stats. Uh, Robert Wilkin, who's a professor or was a professor at the University of Virginia, uh, shares some uh, stats about uh, the growth of Christianity uh, post-Jesus' death, uh, so to speak. So early church, foundational uh, church. He notes, for example, that by the end of the first century, there were somewhere around 10,000 Christians. Estimates, okay. 10,000 Christians somewhere around the end of the first uh, century. And so the Roman Empire was made up of 60 million, give or take uh, a couple million. So that is one hundredth of one percent, okay, by the end of the first century. Uh, By the year 200, uh, the number had increased a little bit more to 200,000, okay? So still less than 1% of the population. By the year 250, the number had risen to more than a million, so maybe 2% of the population, okay? The most striking figure comes towards the end of 300, about that time. It's two generations at least, By the year 300, Christians made up of 10% of the population of the empire, so approximately 6 million, give or take some. Now, again, these are estimates, okay? We don't know for sure exactly what, but you can see the trend. It starts off, the church and Christianity starts off slow, but by the year 300, it's picking up more and more steam, And I think one thing that's revealing about those stats, it's obviously more clear to us today, uh, but that Christianity is not a fad. Uh, It's not going to go out of style. It's not going to burn out. But we see the gospel. We see the church growing in cities, in the country. We see it capturing poor people's hearts, rich people's hearts, Jewish people's hearts, Gentile Christian people's hearts. Uh, It's having an an impact, and it doesn't matter so much your background or your culture or your lifestyle, but it's beginning to have inroads. It's beginning to get great traction. And I bring these up because this morning, the passage that we're looking at, we're going to see a couple of disciples. We don't know their names, but they begin to pursue uh, the Gentiles. Uh, People who are men and women who are outside of any kind of Jewish context or or connection. And we see the gospel going in new directions and taking shape in different ways. Let's stand together. Let's read God's word starting in verse 19. I'll read through verse 30. Let's stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 11 starting in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw that the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. 
He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a while, for, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians for the first time at Antioch. Verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father, in these moments as we uh, hear this, in essence, this missionary activity, uh, it feels uh, foreign to us in our worlds here today. As we think about our calendars, our, our lives, our marriages, our, our children. But we pray in these moments that you would uh, give us ears to hear uh, the truth that's here. And we pray that you would speak to us, both the individuals and as, as a body, your church. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please be seated? The late night host, uh, Jimmy Kimball, uh, some years back, uh, showed a YouTube video. It was a YouTube clip that had gone viral. It would be very popular. And so he brought it onto a show, and he uh, shared it. He shows this clip, and it's, um, it, it, you look at it, it's very much a home movie kind of feel to it. It's this woman in her apartment, and uh, it's, uh, some candles are lit on one of the coffee tables and some of the tables. And you hear this music uh, blaring kind of in the background, and she's dancing. She's just kind of dancing along to the movie, to the music, and it looks kind of silly. But she uh, dances around, and she bumps up against the door. And as she's bumping up against the door, it opens, and it pushes her forward, and it throws her. She loses her balance, and she falls on the coffee table. But there are all these candles that are on the coffee table. The coffee table collapses, and then she pops up into the, the... the screen and her pants are on fire and she's dancing around and then it just kind of ends. And Kimball comes back on and he talks about the video and it's kind of silly what's going on. And then he says, hey, we've got that woman that was in the video. We've got her live right now. And they show this other video screen. They pop her up there and they start, Jimmy Kimball and and her, they start talking back and forth about, you know, what happened and they're just laughing kind of deal. And then Jimmy Kimmel says, hey, you know, we, we need to show the rest of the story to the audience. You know, what happened after, you know, your, your pants caught on fire and the door opened up. And so they, you know, they cue up the tape and they show it. And, of course, you see the door open and she's bouncing around on fire. And then Jimmy Kimmel comes in with the fire extinguisher and puts her out, so to speak. And they laugh a little bit more and ha, ha, ha. And then... The woman says, or and Jimmy Kimball says, you know what, now we need to really spill the beans on, on what's going on with this video. And this girl, that, or this woman that's in her mid-20s or something like that, she looks like she's just, just having an irresponsible moment, so to speak, and she lights herself on fire. But the truth is, she's a stunt woman, and she lights herself on fire as a professional for a living. She does this stuff all the time. And she just put together this video uh, to see what would happen. Uh, to see if it would it get traction, would people like it or not, and all this kind of stuff. 
And to her surprise, just doing this and throwing it out there, you know, the likes of CNN picked it up and they said, you know, look at this video and how could she be so irresponsible and so on and so forth like that. When the truth is, she's a trained professional and she was just having fun, just throwing this video out there just to see what would happen. As we think about Acts here, verse 19 and and so on, as we think about the disciples who have had to be scattered, remember the persecution that broke out starting at the end of, of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, they're, they're having to go other places because they're being hunted down and, and imprisoned or in some cases killed. And, and we see these disciples going out. Of course, they go to the Jews in, in Antioch, but some of them said, you know what, let's go talk to the Greeks. Let's go talk to the Gentiles. Let's just throw that out there and see what happens and see what sticks and see what gets traction. And it turns out they get a good bit of, of traction as they move forth and by faith and obedience with the gospel to these folks, to these individuals. And so what I want to do with this passage is just ask three questions of it and see what we learn. And I want to ask, where does God work? How does God work? And what does God work? Where does God work? How does God work? And what does God work? So first, where does God work? As often as the case, we see him working in places that we don't expect. We see him working in situations and in lifestyles and in people's lives that we just don't expect him to work. Because here we have some Christians, as I said, persecution is broken out and they're forced out of their homes and they're acting like missionaries in a sense. They're, they're going and they're talking with people and they're explaining, you know, this is why I'm leaving my home and this is the gospel and in doing this, and many of them are going to Jews, going to Antioch, for example, the Jews there and talking to that population, which is great. But some of these unnamed disciples, they say, hey, let's go talk to the Greeks. Let's go talk to them and see what happens. And what's interesting about this is we've never seen the disciples go to people like this before. And we kind of blow past that because, you know, yes, the Gentiles and and non-Jewish people are included in this call and we take it we just take it for granted or we're just so ingrained to us but this is really different this is really bold of them to do this is new territory for them for example in in acts 8 philip one of the the disciples who's been scattered he goes to the samaritans and he gauges them with the gospel and and they start to believe and a church is formed there and while the Jews and the Samaritans don't get along, and that's, that's a bold move in and of itself, the Samaritans still have some understanding of the God of the Old Testament. And this, this talk about a Messiah, it wouldn't be completely foreign or alien to them. They would kind of get it a little bit. And then later on, chapter uh, 10, 9 and 10, we saw last week Cornelius, this Gentile believer, Peter goes to him, and he talks about this, the, the, the gospel with them. The Spirit falls on them, and they're moving towards Christ. They're being baptized. They're, they're Christians now. But the thing about Cornelius is that he's what's called in the Bible a God-fearer, meaning that he's, while he's not Jewish by heritage, so to speak, he's uh, identified himself with this God of the Old Testament or this God of the Jews. And so he's got categories. He's got an understanding uh, of this Messiah. But when we get to here, the disciples go and talk to these Gentile or these, these Greek individuals, it's different. 
They don't have these kind of categories. They don't have this understanding of, of the God of the Old Testament and covenants and atonement and sin and a Messiah. They don't necessarily have those categories. And so it looks different to them. In verse 21, it says, a great number came to faith. It talks about how the hand of the Lord was with them. So here are these two or these disciples going and talking to these Gentiles, and God blesses it immensely. You can see how easy it would be as as they're scattered about for them to reason in their hearts and minds as they're talking and talking up the, the church and Christianity to say to themselves, you know what, let's just go to the Jews. Uh, they get it. You know, they know the Old Testament. They know the promises of Messiah. We can build on it from that. We can talk about Jesus in that context. Let's not worry about these Gentiles, these Greeks. You know, they're, they're so pagan. Uh, they do all this crazy stuff. Uh, they're not going to understand it. They're not going to get it. But these unnamed disciples, you say, you know what? Let's go and talk to them. Let's go and talk to the gospel with them and see what happens. Now, when we think about Greek or or Gentile, we think about them in certain categories of of culture or ethnicity and things like that. But the Bible kind of uses another category for uh, for Greek or for Gentile. And that category is irreligious, meaning the individuals who do not associate themselves with any kind of organized religion organized religious life or structure that's, that's foreign to them, that's not a part of who they are. For example, Paul basically talks about them in, in Romans chapter 1. He talks about how individuals suppressing the truth and living their lives how they want to live. Individuals who suppress the, pr- suppress the truth in the sense of uh, they're exposed to creation and they see and understand there had to be somebody else that, that made this has to be some kind of supernatural force out there that did this. They may not be able to name the God of the, of the Bible or Jesus Christ as son, but there's something there. And there's a sense of this irreligious group has suppressed that truth and said, we want to live life based upon our own authority, based upon what we say is true, according to our values, our systems, and what we believe in. And my point is, and as we see here as the disciples move towards this crowd, just because they have no categories for God, they have no understanding of, 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 of sin or law or things like that, it doesn't mean that they're beyond the reach of God. It doesn't mean that they understand they have deep needs of grace and forgiveness and something to do somehow uh, of eternal hope and a need to deal with their guilt and with their shame. For example, there's um, a group or organization that's put together uh, these modern parables. And basically they've taken parables from the, the New Testament that Jesus told, and they just put them on a modern spin. And one of those videos I saw, the only video I saw, was one that redid for the parable of the prodigal son. And so in this video, you see this gentleman getting off an elevator, obviously of a, of a big business uh, building. He's got a suit on, tie, he's got his briefcase, and as he's walking out of the elevator and he walks towards his uh, office doors where his company takes up, you know, one part of the floor of the building, and there's this big party going on inside. Uh, there's people drinking and there's food and there's laughter and it's just a celebration that's going on. And he's just come off from a, a business trip. He's closed on a big deal and he walks in there and he's just kind of like, what is going on? You know, we're supposed to be working. This is not supposed to be happening. 
The secretary sees him and he pulls him aside and he says, hey, you're, you know, your younger brother is home. He's back. Uh, and your father is so excited uh, to see him. Uh, he's thrown this great party for him. And it's the parable of the prodigal son and with a modern kind of spin. And, of course, the older brother is so upset by this. He's beside himself with, with just kind of anger over what's happening. Here's the thing. That, that younger brother in that story, he's a picture of the irreligious one. He's the one that says, you know what? I have no space in my life for religious authority, for organized religion, for a spiritual life. I'm going to live my life based upon my wants, my needs, my desires. I'm going to do this. And he gets to the end of his rope and becomes broken. And God moves into his life in a dramatic way and turns his life around And he's in a unique position to know his need for God because he knows his sin. He knows his brokenness. He knows where he falls short. But the older brother, the elder brother in that passage, he's a picture of the the religious person. And his life looks great on the outside and on the service and all that he's doing and all he has going on. But when his life starts to fall apart, when things start to go wrong, he has a harder time seeing sin and his need for God and grace in his life because he's followed all the commandments. He's done all the right things all the time and things are not adding up to him. My point is that God works in our lives in unexpected ways. He works in people's lives in unexpected ways. And just because they have no categories or understanding, formal understanding of the church and of Christ and sin, in many ways it makes them that much more open to the gospel, the need of the gospel, Because they have an understanding of their own sin, where they fall short in what they need. And so maybe for us here in this room, we need to let this passage kind of capture our imaginations and ask ourselves, who are we praying for? Who are we hoping the gospel goes to? Who are we hoping these people's lives are turned around? Because God is able to work in ways we can never imagine in people we may not imagine. The second question, uh, how does he work? How does God work from this passage? Simply put, God works through people who forget about themselves. God works through people who forget about themselves. And so what I want to do to, to kind of back that up is talk about Barnabas. He's kind of a case in point, I think, in two distinct ways for this. Here's this church that's starting out Church plant in Antioch, so to speak. It's made up of Jews, but Gentiles or Greeks are, are part of this body. And uh, the, the leaders in Jerusalem hear about what's going on, and they say, Barnabas, why don't you go and see what's happening? Check it out uh, and report back to us. We, we want to see what God is doing and how things are, are, are working out there. And so Barnabas goes to Antioch, which is, I think, like the third biggest city uh, in the Roman Empire, 500,000 people, okay, just a tiny bit bigger than Manning, okay. And Barnabas shows up there, and he begins to look, look around and see what's going on. Now, if you're Barnabas, what are you looking for? What's on your radar? What's on your list to try to identify and and see what's, what's going on there? Well, think about it like this. Remember this. This is a different kind of church than what the disciples or the apostles have experienced in Jerusalem because there's more Greeks, there's Gentiles involved in this one, so it's going to look different. And 
Not that he's going to be suspicious, but he's going to have that on his mind as he goes into this place. There's going to be a little sense of of caution. In verse 23, when Barnabas arrives, he says, the grace of God is present. And what's his response to the grace of God? He rejoices. He's excited. This is incredible. This is great. You're you're reaching my my brothers, my Jewish brothers, but you're also reaching these, these Greek and Gentile brothers and sisters as well. It wouldn't be a stretch to to imagine something like this because it's so easy to move past this. Of course, the grace of God was at work. It's the Bible. It's all about God working and doing things and all this stuff that goes on there. But we can't blow past it. But here's, here's Barnabas moving into this area and notice his response is to rejoice. He could have walked into this church and said and gotten back to Jerusalem and reported to his friends and and bosses there, he said, you know what? Gentiles are coming to the faith. Okay, Greeks are there. They're believing in Christ. Uh, they're praying to him. They're taking communion, all this kind of stuff. And you know what, boys? I, I guess this is the way God is going to work. He's just going to do this kind of stuff, and we just need to, to live with it. That's not what he says. That's not what he does. He's excited about it. He's rejoicing in the fact that these Gentiles, these men and women who are a part of the covenant or distant from uh, the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament, they're now there. And he's rejoicing in that. Take this to heart for ourselves. It's easy to be excited and to praise God for what he's doing in our lives. He answered this prayer or he did this in our, somebody's lives that we know or he provided this or that. But are we able to be excited? Are we able to rejoice in other people's victories, in other people's praises? Are we able to, to, to say, this is great, this is awesome? Even when we wish you would do the same thing in our life, are we able to rejoice with others? Are we able to be excited what God is doing in other people's lives and be truly happy for them? The other thing we see in this passage, how God uses selfless people is uh, how Barnabas is not looking to build himself up. He's not willing to, looking to build up his agenda, his status, his responsibility, his, his power, so to speak, but he's thinking about them. And I say this for this, for this reason. Here's Barnabas coming from the, the, the mother church, so to speak, and uh, he's entering into this community, and it's exciting. Uh, it's new. It's fresh. And Barnabas has got answers to their questions. He's got history with the Savior. He's got connections uh, back in Jerusalem. And you could easily see him going into this congregation and then saying, Barnabas, will you teach us this? Barnabas, will you do this? Barnabas, will you do that? And him saying, you know what? This is going to be great. I'm just going to camp down here. This is going to be my ministry. These are going to be my people. And this is going to be great for me. It's going to build up my worth, my identity, my value. I'm going to get so much press back in Jerusalem because of the impact I'm, I'm making here. That's not what we see him doing. Barnabas, in effect, he calls a timeout and he says he goes, he finds Paul, and he brings Paul back. He says, Paul, teach these people. This is, this is who they are. You've got a heart for these Gentiles. You've got a heart for your uh, Jewish brothers. And, and teach and, and help them grow. He's thinking about them. He's not thinking about his own status, his own uh, worth, his own responsibilities that he could have. He's willing to be used like that. This is a snapshot of the type of person that God uses. Are we that type of people? 
we're able to stop thinking about ourselves, our own agendas, our own schedules, and things that we want to see happening? Are we able to, to serve others without thinking about ourselves? We're thinking about, without thinking about how this helps me or promotes me or does me good. Are we that type of, of church? The last one, last point, what does God work? What does God work? Meaning, what are the results of God's work uh, here in this, this passage? And I think there's two things, two things for us to, to kind of pull out and, and apply. The first thing is this, uh, they have a new name. It's the first time in, in all of Acts, we're in chapter 11, it's the first time that believers are called Christians. They're not identified as Christians in many other places in the New Testament, maybe two or three, it's a small number. Most of the time, believers are described as believers or disciples of Christ or followers. This is the first time we see the word Christian being used to describe people who are part of this church and part of this uh, folks who are disciples who identified with Christ like this. And it simply means Christ one. Uh, individuals say that I want to be like Christ. I want to be like him. He is my, my leader. I, I worship him. I want to know him and I want to be like him. I want to be a, a Christian. Now think about it uh, from this perspective. Again, put their, uh, kind of put your head in that time frame, so to speak. Because if you were an individual that walked by uh, a meeting taking place and there were these Jewish Christians in the room, you didn't know they were Jewish Christians, you know all the details about their lives, but you knew they were Jews and they knew things looked different, you would think, well, that's just Jews gathered together and they're worshiping some form of Judaism going on, some form of a worship like that. And you think another person walks by another group, and this is a Gentile or a Greek group, and they're worshiping, they're doing their things, they're doing religious things, and people would think, well, that's, they're worshiping some kind of pagan god. And you begin to see the need for a name, for people to identify with Christ. Say, no, I'm, I'm not Jewish, and no, I'm not worshiping a, a pagan god, but I'm a Christian. I'm one who follows Christ. The trajectory of my life is to be like him, to let him lead to me, lead me, let him have authority in my life and in what I'm doing and how I'm living. In other words, by, by them saying I'm a Christian, they open themselves up to other people looking at this body of, of people, so to speak, and then beginning to say, you know what, they're not distinctly Jewish because there's Greeks there. And they're not distinctly Greek or pagan because there's Jews there. And they're not specifically part of one class of people because it's not all rich people and it's not all poor people. It's not all Middle Eastern people because there's people from all kinds of walks in life and cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities and jobs and education and all that. They're Christian. And by identifying themselves as Christian, they're saying, that's how I want you to know me. First and foremost, I'm a Christian before I'm a lawyer First and foremost, I'm a, I'm a Christian before I'm an American or a husband or a father, whatever the title may be. I want to be known first and foremost as a believer, as a disciple, as a Christian. The second thing is this, and then we'll, we'll close uh, quickly with a word of prayer. That God works to display his power. Uh, what God works is a displayment of his power. And the question for us is, when did they see 
the displacement, when, when was the power of God put on display? It says in verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them. And we read that, that's not a big deal. It's in the Bible. God's supposed to be active working with his people. But when did the disciples know that the hand of the Lord was working? When did they know that God was involved? Was it before they went to Antioch? Or was it after they began proclaiming the gospel? It was after they walked in obedience. It's after they they walked out in faith. That's when they saw God's hand working. That's when they saw God's presence. When they acted in obedience. When they put feet to their faith. When they lived out the commands that were given to them. That's when they knew the hand of the Lord was there. That's when God's power was on display in their lives. When they followed things up with obedience. In our house we have two or three devotional books that we use with the kids. And one of those is a book called Grandpa's Box. Okay, And it's written from a perspective of an older a grandpa uh, sharing with his kids uh, stories from the Bible. And one night we read the story of, of, um, of Gideon in the book of Judges. And Gideon has been earmarked as this leader to deliver the Israelites from uh, the oppression that they're suffering. And Gideon is, you would look at him and think, this is just not a leader. There's just no leadership potential here. But God says, Gideon, I'm going to use you. And he's got this army of 32,000 soldiers to defeat the Midianites here. And one night God says to him, or one time God says, you know what? You don't need 32,000. You just need 300. Okay? You know this story. Many of you know this story. So God whittles down this military force to 300 people to defeat these Midianites. And it gets even worse than that because they use jars and trumpets and shouting to defeat the Midianites. And what's the point? There's tons of points. But the main point is this. God is is using his 300 men to display his power. And it happened when Gideon walked by faith. Some of us... Are frustrated, maybe with our spiritual lives. God, you're not answering my prayer. God, you feel so distant to me. I'm not sure where you are. I'm not sure what, what I should be doing. I need wisdom. I need direction, and so on and so forth. We feel like God is, is distant. We feel like God is mechanical in our lives. That there's no intimacy. There's no closeness that's there. And there may be many reasons. There are many reasons for that. But let me suggest one reason, maybe, why God feels distant to you. It's because you're not walking by faith. God displays his power. He shows us his presence when we're obedient to him, when we walk by faith. Sometimes when we do the awkward things, he shows his presence to us. The disciples, these unnamed disciples, saw the hand of God working only when they began to share the gospel. And I think the same principle applies to us today. If you want to see God work in your life, you've got to act in obedience. You've got to walk by faith. You've got to follow through on his commandments. You have to take his word seriously. You have to trust him. You have to be dependent upon him. And he'll show himself to you. He'll show himself to be faithful. Because his steadfast love is with us morning, noon, and night. Because he loves us with the love of his son that was sacrificed for us. If he did that, surely he's going to be with us everything that we need. Let's pray to him and ask that we would have the faith to trust him more fully. 
Father, it's one thing to sit uh, in these pews. It's one thing to, to hear your word. Uh, what we struggle with is uh, preaching to ourselves and seeing your word take up traction and take up a home in our own lives. Not just to believe it mentally, but to uh, believe it with our feet, to believe it with our hearts, to believe it with our lifestyles, to believe it with all that we are. Father, you're well aware of our sin and our brokenness, and you've given us your son uh, to, to deal with that. But we pray, too, that you give us more of your spirit to apply everything that he's done, that we would walk with you uh, fully and wholeheartedly because you love us, and we want to respond to you uh, because we're grateful all that you've done for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.